My name is Lou Beckett, and I wrote the play Forbidden Music. Previous plays include Rotten Luck and Bletchley Girls. I am pleased today to introduce you to Michael Haas, the subject of Forbidden Music. Michael is a distinguished producer and has worked extensively with many famous musicians, including Luciana Pavarotti and George Solti. Michael wrote the book Forbidden Music, the Jewish composers banned by the Nazis. He is a co-founder and research director at the Center for Band Music, the Vienna Exil Arte Center that is part of the Vienna University of Music and Performing Arts. He is also a director of SOAS's International Center for Suppressed Music. So, Michael, the title of your book and the play, Forbidden Music, hints at the menacing undertones of a dark story. Can you tell us a bit about the body of music referred to in this title? Well, the, the, the music uh, was primarily banned by the Third Reich because of its Jewish provenance. Um, it's interesting because if you compare it with the um, banning of what they considered modernist art, virtually none of the painters that they disapproved of um, were actually Jewish. There were a few, obviously, but um, it turns around to a completely different aesthetic center of gravity when we then come to music, because most of the composers who were banned were writing what we would probably consider rather conventional music. And it was everything from popular music in films, uh, cabaret, popular music uh, in, in operetta. Um, they also composed serious operas, obviously, uh, but really the only Jewish avant-garde composer who was uh, who was really significant enough to be not noticed by the Nazis was um, Arnold Schoenberg. But uh, most of the other composers were writing music that was very, very organic of its time, very reflective of its time, not in any way groundbreakingly modern. And so there were no particular aesthetic um, objections that the Nazis had to the music, except for the fact that it was of Jewish authorship. And because the music was of its period, not groundbreaking, it was then not considered really um, worth reviving after the war because after the war there was a strong feeling that uh, music should have a you know there should be a kind of didactic element of music that um, was anti-fascist in tone in other words music that reflected the aesthetic that the fascists did not like and and because this music was simply of Jewish authorship and did not reflect any particularly avant-garde um, aesthetic or any kind of um groundbreaking advancement that would have been considered uh, dangerous by by the Third Reich um, the the music was then not revived after the after the Second World War in in, in favor of, of music which was certainly much more um, alienating say to a public in which they felt was also more appropriate for a post-nazi age I can imagine the challenge um, when you're at DECA as the play begins and as you are trying to interest your boss and the chairman of DECA to record this music. Can you talk about what that challenge was like and where you were at the beginning of this? I mean, when you initially started this quest, as it were, 
Were you thinking it would be helpful to do three or four albums, or were you already thinking that it would be a much bigger program as it proved to be? I didn't really know where it was going to go. Um, I knew that originally we had started off with the intention of recording the complete stage works of Kurt Weill, including the works that were not um, co-authored by Bertel Brecht because they were virtually unknown and, and unfamiliar. But we had huge difficulties with the Kurt Weill Foundation. In the um, mid-'80s, there was really very little uh, biographical information on Kurt Weill that was available so I had to turn to German sources and discovered that um, along with Kurt Weill, there were a number of other composers who were equally prominent and actually no less prominent than Kurt Weill. And we didn't know who they were. Kurt Weill obviously was remembered because of his successes on Broadway when he did immigrate to New York. But these other composers were basically big question marks. How could they have been so famous, so prominent in the interwar years and then totally forgotten afterwards? So I didn't know how big the series was going to be. I, I had an idea of a few works which I knew from the history books would still be worth recording because there were no recordings available and there were, they were um, interesting kind of um, perimeters that we could set because we started off with Korngold on one side and Ernst Krennic on the other side. So we had a very kind of opulent, late romantic composer in Korngold. And then we had a very avant-garde composer who was incorporating jazz elements as well as atonality in, in, in the other composer. And so between these two extremes, there was a whole um, galaxy of creativity, and I think it was this plurality of creativity that was lost in the interwar years. But I wasn't sure how big the project would actually be. I just knew there were a lot of names of a lot of very prominent composers, and it could have probably just carried on uh, probably long after the, the cutoff date of 2000 when Universal Music bought Polygram, and they had to basically close down everything that wasn't selling like Pavarotti or, or Cecilia Bartoli. Indeed. So what, um, was there any particular set of events that inspired you to start this search? Well, the, the main set of events was, of course, researching the Court Vile project. And uh, in the back of my mind was what I just mentioned, the fact that uh, there were all of these composers who were of equal prominence, but whom we didn't know. And it was, it was simply fascinating. I mean, I didn't have time to deal with it, but I just thought, so who are these people? What happened to them? Um, when the Court Val project fell apart because of difficulties with the foundation, the Court Val Foundation in New York, um, it gave me an opportunity to move forward. And uh, my immediate boss, the character who in this play is called Roy, um, and I'll continue to call him Roy, um, was very much against um, doing anything with the money that we had put aside for the Court Val project. He wanted it returned to the general budget. But we were lucky enough that the president of DECA was a German who came from a very kind of prestigious family, but a family that was also associated with Martin Heidegger. And Martin Heidegger was, of course, one of the great 20th century philosophers who then sided with the Nazis. And, and I think there was this feeling that this was something that really needed to be recovered. And I was lucky enough to have 
the support of the president of, of the company who basically um, just simply vetoed the objections of my immediate boss, um, didn't exactly help the relationship between me and my immediate boss, but at least it gave me the freedom to, to move forward with the project. So there was no um, individual thing that suddenly went click. It was, it was as I said, uh, uh, just something that had developed over the course of the research necessary to, to, to get the Court Val project off the ground. Within the play, and one of the major subjects is the topic of male sexual harassment. I mean, this was the late 1980s, a rather less open environment than today. Can you talk about what it was like to deal with a situation like that in that environment? I think we're dealing with two very distinct generations here. My generation was the first generation that could easily come out. And uh, even though I say easily, it wasn't easy at the time. And, and of course, there was this, this terrible um, persecution and hate campaign that was being driven by the tabloids and then subsequently picked up by the government with Clause 28 and things like that. But at least it was legal. At least people were coming out. At least people could live openly as in same-sex relationships. My boss, Roy, however, came from a generation of people, um, if you, you know, if you think of, if you think of um, Jeremy Thorpe's portrayal in the recent sort of a very British scandal, it was like watching my boss. This was, this was a generation that had grown up where doing gay things was not illegal being gay was illegal. You were breaking the law merely by existing. And um, I, to, to give you the context, for example, around the time of the Jeremy Thorpe scandal and all the rest of it, I remember being in Vienna, looking at yesterday's times, um, because you couldn't get the today's times, you could only get yesterday's newspaper in English. And there was a, you know, a thundering editorial about a Scottish judge who had resigned because he had been outed as homosexual. And the tone of the editorial was simply, we cannot have sexual perverts in such positions. Now, he hadn't done anything. It was, again, just by being. And I think that this, uh, this, this um, generation of men, and probably women as well, who were simply carried along by the momentum of society, they entered into heterosexual marriages, and in, in the case of Roy, and in the case, as you can see in this story of Jeremy Thorpe, it got to the point where you, these people were disassembling to the extent where they could never tell you the truth about anything. You could, ask, you could ask Roy what day of the week it was, and his first instinct was, I must send him off on a wild goose chase because I don't know what other thing he wants to get from me. And so they, the first inclination was always to lie and always, and, and subterfuge and, and deceit, and it, and it corrupted his personality as well. I think these things inevitably have to corrupt. Um, and so it was, it was difficult. They... Of course, people would say, oh, well, there are these gay cabals that exist within the music industry or, or maybe in theatres or, or in fashion or wherever. But in fact, at a time when these things were illegal or so, um, so objected to socially that, they, that you couldn't really in any way be open about your sexuality, 
And it was inevitable that people were constantly trying to, to shore up their little circles or bubbles, as we would say today. And I think that that was very much the, the view of, of that generation. But the difference was, was his generation. I mean, he was the person who probably had had many encounters with other married men, because that's just what his generation did. But by the time he was dealing with the next generation, that was no longer the case. And I think that that was always the big conflict that existed um, between us. That was a generational conflict, but it was also a personal conflict as well, clearly. Yes, and I suppose in the current world, when cases of sexual harassment occur, there are outlets and there are vehicles that one can go often within the institution and talk to people about it and get help in addressing the issue. I would guess in the situation that's described in the play, there were no such outlets within DECA. It was you and Roy that were going to have to sort this out. That's true. And, and it would have been a big help if such outlets had existed. The big problem in those days was also the assumption that, okay, if you have two gay people, they must sleep together. <laughs> you know, the, the idea that, you know, that the gay people would be just as deserting as heterosexuals and would have people that they prefer and people that they probably don't prefer just never enters into their consciousness. So, in fact, I had to live with the fact that as far as most of the people at DECA were concerned, I must have been sleeping with my boss, you know, because, well, why not? He's gay and they, even though he claimed that nobody knew he was gay, everybody knew he was gay. And they knew that I was gay. So, of course, you know, we must be sleeping together, even if it wasn't happening, which, if, you know, thankfully it wasn't. But that was always the kind of unspoken frisson that uh, existed uh, in, 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 in this context. And it was very difficult. You couldn't just sort of walk into a room of your colleagues and say, I am not sleeping with our <laughs> boss. You know, it would have been so much easier if I had had the ability to go to somebody and say, look, I'm being sexually harassed by my, by my boss. I don't particularly want him fired. I just don't want him to carry on, you know, get him to stop. And then it could have all been out in the open and that would have been a much easier way of dealing with things. Another element within the play that's discussed is the class structure within Britain. And within the play, Roy talks about your American roots and how there was a bit of a black mark against you because of that. And you didn't go to school in the UK, so the British didn't have any of the traditional ways of marking where you fit into the uh, social class structure of the country. Was this much of an issue? Um, did you find this when you moved into DECA and the structures that existed? Was this ever an issue? It was a huge issue. Um, it was a huge issue. I mean, America was an important market for DECA. In fact, it was DECA's most important market, so they were recording a lot of orchestras in America, and they dealt with a lot of Americans. Um, there was always the, the, the slightly patronizing tone that um, Americans were the Romans to our Greeks, you know, that we, we had the experience, we had the wisdom, but the Americans had the money and the strength and the youth and the power. And if we could only just, you know, collaborate, somehow or somehow or another, it would, it would work out. 
Um, but there was always this feeling. Yeah, it was it was a little bit difficult because so much of my education was actually in Austria, was in Vienna where I grew up, and and uh, so I was completely bilingual. So um, I I didn't really fit into the normal American stereotype. I didn't know anything about American sports. Um, but for that matter, I didn't know anything about English sports either. Um, you know, cricket and rugby were completely. You know, they were a mystery to me, to the big as, as big as basketball and American football. So I didn't really come with a lot of the, you know, the, 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 the pre-concepts of American, of, of a young American. But on the basis of why they hired me was because, of course, my musical education, as well as the uh, German-English uh, bilingual ability, because we also recorded in, in Germany and Austria huge amounts. And they didn't have any personnel that covered that particular area simply because of they didn't have any people who spoke German. Yes, interesting. Going back to the music, many people will be unfamiliar with this body of music. Could you tell us a bit more, for example, if you thought of the layperson who might be listening to this, who were the composers that were resurrected during this period, if that's the correct term, um, that they might recognize? Well, it's it's an interesting sort of idea. I mean, obviously, there was a huge amount of serious music that, that was lost. But um, I think one of, the, one of the things that people tend to overlook is the influence of popular music. Um, first of all, virtually every movie in those days had a hit had a hit song. And um, the hit songs were almost always of Jewish authorship. And in these pre-Nazi days, the movie industry in Berlin, the movie industry in Paris and London and Rome, they were pretty competitive with what was happening in Hollywood. They were big industries. They were making big films. These films were also being exported to the rest of the world. And so a lot of the composers who were writing for these films really quite significant. So you had that element of pop music. But then I think it goes even further. For example, who would know that Wilhelm Gross, who was a, a Jewish composer from, from Vienna, who studied with Franz Schreker, would then become the first recording producer in Berlin, along with another man named Walter Gör, and uh, and then go on to write lots and lots of pop music. In fact, he was then commissioned to write... A, a, a hit song for a Hollywood movie called Along the Santa Fe Trail, which starred Ronald Reagan, amongst other people. <laughs> and he wrote, and he said, well, I haven't actually got a, a hit, I can't quickly write a hit song, but I have another hit song which I've written in, uh, in German, um, which is, I think the title was something like The Last Tango or something like that, or This Won't Be The Last Tango or something. Anyway, he then said... I, the words you send me fit perfectly. And it was the music that went to uh, the film Along the Santa Fe Trail. Well, who could have guessed that Along the Santa Fe Trail, as by composed by Wilhelm Gross, originally composed for a Berlin film, would then become arguably the first country Western hit, you know? And then another composer who came from Budapest, the uh, Joseph Kosma, 
it would then team up with Jacques Prévert in Paris afterwards. And there is, every time anybody wants to make a point about something being particularly Parisian, they will play in the background the music of Les Feuilles Mortes. And Les Feuilles Mortes is by Joseph Cosma. It is the most Parisian piece of music you can imagine. Yet it wasn't written by a Parisian at all. It was written by a Hungarian Jew. And and then, you know, there was Kohlreuter who went to... To Rio de Janeiro, and his his teachers were and he was the teacher of people like Robin, who was the father of the bossa nova. So you have this, you know, popular music going in all directions. So post-war French chanson comes originally, let's say, from this Hungarian Jew, um, or Santa Fe Trail, the first country western hit came from a Viennese Jew, or Kohlreuter, who was the sort of progenitor of what would become the bossa nova. And, and South American rhythmics and, and popular music down in South America and Latin America came actually from a Berlin Jew. So there was this, so this was the effect of this massive diaspora that came out of Europe that would then develop and take root elsewhere. So virtually nothing was uninfluenced by this diaspora of music. I mean, even, even to our day, you could even argue that people like... Um, Sondheim was influenced by Blitzstein and Blitzstein was influenced by Kurt Weill. So that there's a, there's a line that goes from Central Europe straight to um, the musical cultures of what we would probably call the West, you know, to North and South America. That's very helpful. I hadn't thought of it as, as such a broad scope of that. I mean, one of the things interesting is that people like Eric Korngold, who the play deals with briefly, uh, that his operas, Die Tote Stadt, The Dead City, and some of his music has become performed much more frequently in the last um, decade, I would guess, than it was for, you know, since, since it was written. So it is interesting that a number of pieces have become popular I would guess in part because of this movement. I think it's in, in addition to everything else. Korngold um, was a, a, a perfect example of what I was talking about earlier. Music that was written that a lot of the greater good in academia, amongst in, in orchestra and music management, simply said, um, "Look, this is music that the Nazis would have loved." if Korngold had not been a Jew. So this music has no relevance to us post-Nazi because we need really to get a different aesthetic basis in the music-consuming population. And Korngold doesn't fit that bill whatsoever. Quite the opposite. He sold himself out to Hollywood where he made a huge amount of money. All of these things were assumptions which actually weren't true. Um, I think that as time has gone on and we've moved away from the very, very alienating uh, musical avant-garde of the, say, starting in 1960 that went right up to about 1990. Um, it, people have begun to accept uh, the, the, the plurality of, of, of musical, um, musical voices and over time the 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 voice of, of Eric Korngold, his musical voice, um, was not so much Hollywood being then 
extrapolated into the rest of his music. It was Korngold who extrapolated his own personal style into Hollywood. And of course, people have always seen it as the other way around. And once they suddenly realize that, hang on, the music that he was writing for Hollywood bears an incredible resemblance to the music that he was writing before he went to Hollywood, then all of a sudden it becomes less difficult for them to say, well, this is just cheap music. This is just music that plays on your emotions. And they allow a certain amount of, um, it, it's gained credibility. It's no longer a disgrace to say that you actually like Korngold. It used to be, you wouldn't be taken seriously if you said that you were um, a fan of Korngold's music. This was only as recently, I would say, as, as, as you point out, as, as 10 years ago, um, where the music was always seen as cheap, derivative, Hollywood-esque. And it's only with sort of greater familiarity with Korngold and his overall output that they suddenly realize, no, Korngold's music is not Hollywood-esque. Hollywood is Korngold-esque. I mean, that's a huge contribution when you think about it, uh, that classical music became the underpinning of many Hollywood, well, not only films, but songs that were catering to that sort of market. Well, I, I mean, Hollywood benefited enormously from the diaspora, not just of musicians, but also technicians, also actors and actresses, writers, um, all sorts of people were involved who are probably not really very uh, known today by your average film goer or, or film connoisseur even. But, but you know, they were, they were all playing this enormous role in how Hollywood um, developed during that period. And it was still a fairly new game as well. I mean, let's face it, the first color films were only coming out in 1938 and the first sound films only since 1927. And even that was, a, you know, even then, if we think of the jazz singer, that was only the music that was sound. The rest of the film was exactly as before with the titles interspliced between scenes of action. And so um, it was really still a new world, still in development, and there were still lots of ideas as to how music and the visual effects go together at the time that were still being debated. There was the view that you could amplify the visual, which was, of course, Korngold's speciality. So if you saw a ship on sea, he would just simply write a piece of music that amplified the fact that this was not a toy ship in a bathtub, which is probably the way they filmed it. But it was, in fact, a mighty frigate in, in the middle of the ocean. And, and, and his music could, could bring that across. But then you had other composers who had a very different view, the, the view that what they would call a kind of visual dialectic, whereby if you had an, a, a lot of action in the film, you would actually underlie it with slow, thoughtful music because that would tend to increase the kind of dialectic between what you saw and what you heard and create a synthesis of sensations. And it could go the other way around as well. You could have a very slow something happening on, on, on film and then have have really dynamic, loud music, which would be underlying some sort of inner turmoil that that would be then also a, a, a result of this kind of synthesis that was that was taking place by having these different elements juxtaposed at the same time. But there was there was also 
Um, the idea of, um, uh, you know, uh, Hans Eisler was nominated for for um, an Oscar for his music Hangman Also Die, and yet so much of the music is diegetic. That is to say that, you know, you turn on a radio and there's music, or there's uh, the workmen are singing a song or something like that. There's not kind of a soundtrack as such. The music is part of the action. And uh, that was also a new idea, a new thought. How do you work? How do things work like that? And all of these things were new in cinema, and, and, but so much of the intellectual foundations were coming out of this diaspora that had been thrown out of Central Europe. So were there other people? Uh, you must have felt a bit like a lone voice at this point, were there other people trying to raise awareness of this body of music as, as you started your work and as you say, it unfolded, it wasn't immediately obvious that there was this large body of music you wanted to unearth. I believe in the end there were 30 albums of music produced from this period. Um, what was your sense of how long it took to get other people other institutions interested in this body of music? Uh, I would say it was probably a good 20 years, um, at least. German musicologists and German music administrators and academics and musicians felt somewhat compromised because they didn't want to use Nazi terms to um, underline music that had been lost during the Nazi years. Decca had absolutely no such inhibitions, and they called the recording series that we made Entartemusik, which was a Nazi term. You could have approached any 20-year-old in Germany or in Austria and said, do you know what Entartemusik means? And they would have said, no, probably not, but I do know that that's a Nazi word. And so um, by having this Nazi um, label, um, it was actually easier for us. There had, of course, been other initiatives. You would see uh, chamber music recordings by much smaller local labels in Germany and Austria that would record music from the 20s and 30s. And you would see that these were composers that were actually all banned, but nobody actually says this in the accompanying notes. And and you also... And, and, and the German musicologists and people we inevitably had to work together with because the project was actually based in Berlin and Leipzig, they tended also still to hold to the view that we've got to re-educate the German people away from Nazi music. And too much of this music, even if it was written by Jews, is still music that the Nazis would have really liked if it hadn't been written by Jews. And so there was, uh, it was an effort to try and push these projects through. There was an awful lot of resistance. There was resistance also because it's historically interesting and worth pointing out, Margaret Thatcher was absolutely against the unification of the two Germanys. She was absolutely against moving the, the um, the capital of Germany, from Bonn to Berlin. Um, she hated Helmut Kohl. The fact that she was such an anti-German individual running the UK was a constant feature in, in the German media at the time. Um, you may remember that uh, Nicholas Ridley, one of, her, one of her ministers, was denounced by referring to Germans as Nazis in, in, in an interview. And so there was always this view that the British 
always see Germans as Nazis. They parody the Germans as Nazis. There is no, they have never moved on since 1945. And by selling this music, using a Nazi term, they're simply, they're simply trying to uh, score points again. And so there was a huge amount of resistance to the series. We were uh, coming from Germany itself, from German uh, journalists and music writers. We were in the lucky position of still having Bertolt Goldschmidt with us. And Bertolt Goldschmidt who was a composer who had suffered firsthand uh, at, at the, uh, with the Nazi ban on his music and had been on the brink of becoming somebody really quite significant within Germans, Germany's uh, musical scene, um, was able to, to, to neutralize a lot of these objections simply because he was there. And he could tell them exactly what had happened and exactly what he'd gone through and why he felt that the provocation of using Entartete Musik was necessary in order to get people to, to notice this music for exactly what it was, which was music that had been banned and had been lost and had not been revived afterwards. Just as a final question, Michael, is if we look at the world of music now, what's your sense of how well this music has become integrated? And I suppose at another level, accepted for what it is? Do people understand this period and what happened and the consequences for the world of music? Uh, well, primarily the biggest difference has been in the music uh, scheduling of uh, programs in Germany and in Austria. Um, where the music has suddenly been accepted and taken on at, at, at quite an incredible rate. Every one of the operas we recorded has been produced and, and, and run in various opera houses, some in quite famous opera houses. I mean, the, the Sfunda de Heliano uh, opened in Berlin only two years ago and is now seeing lots and lots of other productions. Um, Die Tote Stadt, of course, is, is, is now well established, but also operas by by Krennic, by Schulhoff, um, Bertel Goldschmidt's operas are being performed now. But these are uh, Hans Gahl's operas are being performed. These are things that uh, are happening in the many, many German provincial opera houses. It's a different environment in Germany, of course, where every medium-sized city has its own opera theater and orchestra and ensemble and where they're constantly looking for new and adventurous things to do. We don't have that in the UK, and we certainly don't have it in the US. Um, but in, the, in, in Germany, um, this music has now, has now begun to take off in a big way. Osnabrück is just about to do Fremde Erde by Karl Rathaus, um, one of the composers that we also featured in the recording series. So that, so that I, I can't say that I'm disappointed. No, the music has, has definitely established itself, eventually it may come into the kind of Anglo-American sphere of music as well. And slowly, for example, Korngold Symphony in F-Sharp was just performed last week in the proms and has been given tremendous reviews, not just for the performance, but for the work as well. Some people suddenly realize this isn't a work that's derivative of Hollywood. This is Korngold at his best. And it's really the only symphony he wrote. So um, it's, it's a great work on its own merits. And I think that we finally got to the point where, where people can see that, certainly in, this, in, in the case of Korngold, but also in the case of these other composers who were 
who were dismissed as being late romantic because people assumed Korngold was the only one, but that's not the case. There was Franz Schreker. His operas are now being performed much more regularly in German and Austrian houses. Um, even Semlinski, um, Hans Gall, an, a name I mentioned earlier, who went to Edinburgh and is now to the, in the UK, is fundamentally remembered as a kind of the, the man who built up the music department at Edinburgh University and was a co-founder of the Edinburgh Festival. In fact, Hans Gahl was one of the most prominent opera composers of his generation in interwar Europe at the time. The same with Walter Braunfels. So all of this music has definitely re-established itself, but it's re-established itself in its natural home, in its natural backyard, which is to say Germany, Austria, Switzerland, Czech Republic, places like that where the composers came from and where the creativity originated and where they're now hearing it again. Many thanks, Michael, for this interview and for this amazing contribution to music. I think many listeners will appreciate perhaps some for the first time, as it was for me when I started this process, to realize that there was this large body of music that had been forgotten and is now available you mentioned Jeremy Thorpe. For listeners outside the UK, they may not recognize that story. Could you just give us a brief synopsis of what happened? Well, Jeremy Thorpe was, was leader of one of the major political parties in the UK at the time, and um, he uh, risked being exposed by a male prostitute, and um, he actually took a contract out on the male prostitute. In the end, um, the male prostitute's dog was shot, but not the male prostitute. But this in itself was already a scandal. And when it emerged that this had happened, a whole world just came crashing down. I think it, if one um, can see the programs, uh, A Very British Scandal, I think was the title of it, um, they would see the context of what it was like to be an establishment figure in England at that time even though homosexuality was already legal, it was still seen as something that was sexually perverted. Homosexuals are seen as dangerous people and absolutely unworthy of holding any high positions. <laughs> 